Chapter Ten, Part Two, The Foundation of Good Citizenship, of the Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Megan Kunkel. The Making of a Nation: The Beginnings of Israel's History, by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter Ten, Part Two. Importance of Children's Loyalty to Parents It is generally recognized by scientists that the place of animals in the scale of being is dependent upon the length of their period of infancy. The lower forms of animal life are mature almost as soon as they are born. Minnows never come under the care of their genitors, but are independent as soon as they are hatched. The young of the less developed quadrupeds are soon weaned and forgotten by their parents. The longer the young remain in the care of their parents, the higher the form of the animal. The great difference between men and most of the higher animals is thought by many to be dependent upon the length of childhood, and the consequent care and attention given by the parents. Even among human beings, it is scarcely too much to say that the longer the time of education and training under proper supervision lasts, the more successful finally at the end of life the man will be. When one considers that Aristotle, who is perhaps generally accepted as the world's greatest thinker, associated with his great teacher, Plato, twenty years, until he was thirty-eight years of age, and produced nearly all his important works only after that time, we may see one example of the profound importance of training. The care of parents for their children throughout all of their early years would naturally imply loyalty of children to the parents, as a mark of gratitude for the time and affection expended upon them. In one of his characteristic poems, filled with wise suggestion, Lowell speaks of obedience as that, great taproot of the state and civilization. The habit of obedience is one of the finest characteristics in family life, and obedience to parents normally becomes obedience to law in the citizen, one of the surest bonds of society, and one of the most necessary conditions of social progress. This fact was so fully recognized in the patriarchal stage of society that the head of the family within the tribe had the power even of life and death over the members of his household. In practically all earliest societies we find this authority of the parent, and the obedience of the child insisted upon as fundamental. In the Orient, even to the present day, this respect of children for their parents is closely bound up with their religion and their civilization. The first wish of every man is that B may have a son to sacrifice to his memory after he has gone. And not only in China, but in many other states we find ancestral worship springing from this relation of father and son. The primitive Hebrew laws made death the penalty for a child who struck or cursed his parents. In many countries, parricide is considered the worst type of murder. The very old Sumerian law of ancient Babylon punished with slavery the son who repudiated his father. In the fifth commandment, no penalty is named for disrespect toward one's parents. The religious sanction only is implied, though the penalty of death was inflicted by the law of the tribe. In society today, our aim in education is to develop individuality and for a country with a democratic form of government, this type of education should be encouraged. Disobedience or disrespect to parents has no longer a legal penalty, although the children may be compelled by law to support their parents. But gratitude toward parents and a normal affectionate family life are practically essential to social welfare. Aside from its civic aspect, there is nothing in society more beautiful than the right relationship between parents and children. Jesus, who represented the kingdom of God as a household, found that the best analogy for the relationship of men to God and the best descriptions of the divine nature are based upon this relationship. Primary Obligations of Man to Man 
The second five commandments of the Decalogue deal with the obligations of man to man. These commands still find a central place in modern society as the best guarantees of social stability, security, and peace. All of the crimes with which they deal, except that of covetousness, were punished in Hebrew custom and law by definite penalties. In many instances these penalties were still more severe among other peoples. As soon as society emerges from the savage state, the crime of adultery is always forbidden. Nothing else stirs the worst of human passions as the sexual jealousy. Even today probably no other cause is more productive of murder and suicide. In early societies, like that of the Israelites, to this normal human feeling of personal wrong was added that of the loss of property, for wives or concubines were considered as property. Hence the penalty for adultery among the Hebrews, as with many ancient and many modern peoples, was death. As soon as society develops from the savage into the pastoral stage, private property is recognized in the flocks and herds. In the development of society additional types of property rights appear under various forms of ownership, until it is not too much to say that modern society is based largely upon property rights. The evil associated with property are many, but as yet, at any rate, the rights of property are a benefit to the state, provided these rights are exercised under proper legal supervision. It should be recognized, however, that the command, Thou shalt not steal, may well have various meanings, dependent upon the laws of property. Our law restricts the right of legacy, the sale or even the possession of poisons and often of dangerous weapons. Similarly, the degree of ownership of other goods is often limited. The ninth command, not to bear false witness against one's neighbor, is often interpreted as simply a violation of one's oath in court, or when appended to formal legal papers. But in most modern countries the command is also interpreted so as to include lying. If this crime is defined in its broadest sense, as lack of truth and trustworthiness, it is in many ways the greatest sin man can commit against society. Practically all modern economic and social relations are based upon the security of contracts and upon the readiness of businessmen and citizens to keep their word. It may be well questioned whether the crime of murder is as dangerous to society as the habit of deception, for the temptation of murder is rare as compared with that of deception, while the evil is often less far-reaching in its consequence and less despicable. In the last command, that directed against covetousness, the lawgiver goes beyond the external act to the motive and spirit in the mind of the individual. If this command is kept in spirit, the others are practically unnecessary. This command is like in kind to that of Jesus in the New Testament, where all the commandments are summed up into one, love one another. The Present-Day Authority of the Ten Commandments The various books that make up our Bible were each written to meet the needs of the people of its day, but inasmuch as the prophets and lawgivers from the days of Moses to those of Jesus touched upon the most vital questions of human life and society, these principles are most of them universal and applicable to all tribes and nations and races and peoples. Necessarily there are many variations in the specific methods by which these commands are to be carried out. The honor and reverence due everywhere to mother and father may well have different applications, depending upon the type of civilization, the customs of living, and the type of home life that exists in the different countries. The injunction to keep the Sabbath may well be carried out with the same spirit in various ways. What constitutes theft depends upon the law of the separate state and upon the rights of property granted by that law, but everywhere the primary obligations of the individual to God, to society, and to his fellow men remain substantially the same. As he develops a more tender conscience, a more just and kindly attitude toward his fellows, 
a greater reverence toward his Creator. The spirit with which he keeps these commandments is becoming continually more urgent, whatever may be the specific way in which they may be carried out, for the benefit of his fellow men and of society. Questions for further consideration Does idol worship exist in any part of the civilized world today? If so, where, and in what forms? Are those addicted to profanity necessarily and intentionally irreverent? What is the origin of this habit? How may it be eradicated? What are some of the best methods by which children may be guarded against it? Do you think it is right for the state to become responsible for the religious education of its citizens? What is the fundamental difference between the so-called continental Sabbath and that observed by Jesus? In what way may Sunday be a day of greater profit and significance to the working man? What attitude should one take regarding so-called white or society lies? Under what circumstances, if any, is it right to lie? Subjects for further study 1. The Decalogues in Exodus 20-23 through 23. Historical Bible, version, Volume 2, page 209-24 2. Jesus' version of the ancient prophetic Decalogue. See Matthew 5, 17 and 18, 6, 19 through 21, 12, 1 through 12, 31, 32, 15, 3 through 5, 22, 36 through 39. 3. Compare the moral ideas of the Decalogue with those of the present-day socialist. Cross the essentials of socialism, walling, socialism as it is, Spargo, Elements of Socialism End of chapter 10